Well, good morning to everyone. All right, so here's what we're going to do real quick. If you're a mother, go ahead and stand up. So we definitely want to give a round of applause, so let's do that now. We're a little late. So mothers, mothers, we have some gifts for you, um, and I want you to stay standing, uh, but we have some gifts for you from Rise and from the, some of the teens that are here. And I want to, I want to just encourage with a, a couple of things. Um, in a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate Father's Day. But today we celebrate Mother's Day, and it's an incredible opportunity. I want to say thank you on behalf of your kids, and obviously I have a mom or else I wouldn't exist, and thank you to my mom. But I want to say to to you all that this is a culture that has put way too much pressure on moms because a culture that has minimized dads, a culture that has said that that uh, kids are, don't have a hope or, or a purpose, but moms, you know that. You look at your kids and you see the purpose and the vision and the hope. And I want to just, b- before um, we go to a, just a short video I want to show, um, I just want to have it, everybody who's not a mom, just go ahead and put your hand on the mom that's next to you. And I want to pray. I want to say just, God, I, I thank you so much for these moms that are here. God, if you were required perfection, you would have put God as our mom. But you required a mom. A mom that sometimes messes up, but still keeps going. And God, I pray for your peace and your wisdom to remove any lies that a mom may be feeling or thinking right now that they're not good enough, that they haven't done enough, but that they would look to you to be enough. I pray that you would be their encouragement and their peace I pray that their kids would actually be, well, humans that they don't want to throw out a window today. (laughs) That they would be a blessing and an honor to their mother today. And God, I lift up those women in here that wanted to be a mother but never could. I pray that you would encourage them, God, and lift them up. That there's nothing wrong with them. That you have a purpose that you will use this for whatever means you see, whatever value you see, God, that you would encourage them and lift them up. Bless the mothers today, God, here and everywhere, God. Amen. Let's give the moms a round of applause again. Let me just go ahead and, and say, first off, we had a lot of people come in this week and unpack individually each of these little plastic-wrapped chairs and set them all up. So Operation Happy Bottom is complete, okay? And yes, the services will now be four and a half hours long because you can handle it. Let me just go ahead and start this video. It's a little video to, as a tribute to our mothers. Warning, use of this product may alter your perception of reality. Everything looks the same. Can somebody hit me with some juice? And listen, pulp, no pulp, doesn't make a difference to me. You're the ones dealing with the diaper. Mom goggles. 
Have fun glamping. What is that? I have no idea. Huh. We got this. Yep. I mean, think about this. The kids are older. Now they practically take care of themselves. <laughs> understands me. We're doomed. What did we do the last time they left us alone with the kids? Mom goggles. Those things were so great. I mean, they helped us see things like moms see things. Whatever happened to them? I definitely put them in a place I knew I would never forget. Great. Where are they? I forgot. Uh, computer phone. Order two pair of mom goggles. Ordering two pairs of mom joggers. Nope, uh, no, goggles, mom goggles. Say that to my face, young lady. I'm so confused on how I'm feeling. I don't even know why I'm angry, but it feels good to yell. What you're feeling is natural. You truly are a gift from God. And I hope you know I'm always here for you. You're the best dad in the world. I'm sorry I don't tell you that more often. I am going to cry like a man child at your wedding. Look at this mess. It is literally a pigsty in here, mister. How are you going to organize your life if you can't organize your sock drawer? First, it's unmatched socks. Then, unfinished homework. Then, kicked out of school. Next, <gasps> jail. <laughs> <laughs> How does she process this every day? All right, one more time. Plastic bowls up top, face down, forks up, knives down, plates in the center, pots and pans we wash by hand. Now repeat it back to me. No, I don't think the joggers make you look fat. I've got my dad's thighs. 
Don't you need the goggles? Now, I've seen your mom do this so many times. You have a great mom, you know that. That's great. Mm. Can you hand me the barf bucket? No, okay, here, here we go. I got your cat out of the dryer. You're welcome. I don't own a cat. <laughs> How do they do it? Cats? Moms. How do they do all of this without the goggles? They don't need them. Moms have this God-given ability. Yeah, it's like no matter what the circumstance, they always see the best version of what their kids can be. Moms are a little glimpse of heaven. <laughs> it wasn't me! Happy Mother's Day. Now, I, I have to... No, I'm not going to get in trouble on Mother's Day. All right. So doing a complete shift, let's go from third gear to reverse and jump to 1 Corinthians. <laughs> go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Something from last week really stuck out to me. We're going to repeat a couple of verses from last week. If you get the podcast or you go to the website and, and click on the teaching to, to catch up or so on, you might have seen, I'll typically do a short little devotional, a little write-up in the actual teaching section of what the teaching was about. And I'll share some different things that God had on my heart, either directly from the notes or just things that were different. And one of the things that stuck out to me was, last week's teaching was looking out for number one. How many of you have ever heard that phrase, looking out for number one, Right? Now, a lot of times what we try and do is we try and say, okay, I don't want to look out for number one. I need to think of other people. But the problem with that statement is, is that we're still number one. See, the issue is, is that it's not that we need to change that we don't look out for number one anymore because we're all going to look out for number one. You'll see this is the first point this morning. We all look out for number one. It, we were designed that way. God built us that way. So the problem isn't looking out for number one. The problem is this. It's that it's who we choose as number one that we have the control over. We're always going to look after number one. That's how we were designed. We're always going to look after our number one priority. The problem is, is that we put ourselves and other things in that number one priority. So this morning, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to start back up in verse, uh, sorry, verse 7, and we're going to read through to verse 11, and then we're going to go through some, some points this morning. So verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, Now therefore, it is already an utter failure. Now isn't that a great way to start out? The Sunday morning, it's like, hey, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 7. I'm, in a, I'm a failure. It's an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Remember the scenario here. Paul's getting on their case, in some, in some ways literally, 
that they're going and taking their brothers and sisters in Christ to court. You owe me $300 because I let you borrow it, or, or you know, I let you take my car and, and something messed up in it, so I'm going to sue you for that. So it's like someone on this side suing someone on this side because of a civil dispute of some kind. Completely lost priority. And Paul says in verse 6, at the very end of it all, he says, you guys are going, you're suing each other, and you're doing this in front of the world. And so he says, guys, you've already failed. You, you think you're going to win by taking them to court because you've got all the evidence. And he goes, by taking them to court, you become the first loser. You become the first loser. Verse 7 continues in the next sentence. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be defrauded? No, you yourselves do wrong and defraud, and you do these things to your brothers. There's an exclamation point there. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let me pause there before I read the rest of these verses. When we read sections that we're going to read here in just a minute in Scripture, we often read them far out of the context that was intended by the writer. When we read sections like this, we read these sections as if Paul was giving us something to repeat, or if God says, you know, you read these things and repeat them to other people. I want to challenge us all this morning to look for the context that God is trying to help us understand. Yes, there's absolute truth in the scriptures, but why is it there and what do we do about it? So let's keep reading. He says here, next sentence in verse 9, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some of us say, hey, how did they talk about all my coworkers? But the point of Paul writing that was not that we put it on a bumper sticker and repeat it to people. That's not the context of this whole section of Scripture. You can't, you can't, in fact, you would be misusing, and we're warned about that in Revelation, you would be misusing God's word if you took this list and said, I'm supposed to tell people they're not part of the kingdom because it says it here. Because that's not the purpose of Paul putting this here. The purpose is in the next verse, verse 11, and such were some of you. The context here is from verse 6 of chapter 7, where he says, you're in front of unbelievers and you're acting like idiots. He then says in chapter 5, he says, verse 10, he says, I certainly didn't mean that you're going to be judging the people of the world and getting on their case. Because if you had to, you'd have to remove yourself physically from the world, and you can't go, as the Great Commission says, if you're not there. Paul's context here is, yes, this is truth. Yes, these are evil things. These are vile things. These are lifestyles that are in worship of other gods besides our God, and other lifestyles and other things and other feelings, whatever it is that's being worshipped, but it's not our God. And this is why Paul lists this here in verse 9 and 10. And then he says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were set apart, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Too often we read verse 9 and 10 and we stop, as if that's the entirety of Bible, the God, God's stance or the Bible's stance on the horrific things of sin, the horrific wrong worship we have in our life. The problem with doing that is that we take time and we make number one being what I'm comfortable with. I had a friend of mine at work this week 
get real frustrated with the news. He's like, Joe, why can't people just say, like, objectively what's true? And if you guys know me well enough, I didn't answer his question. I actually responded with, I said, well, the problem is, is no one can ever be objective. It is impossible to be objective. He says, I don't know if that's true. I said, well, why didn't you like the news article? Well, it just doesn't match what I like or what I believe. I said, your perceptions are what are going to shape what you believe. I said, because you like it doesn't make it right. There are some people, and this is a big struggle, there are some people that like firearms. I enjoy firearms. I enjoy guns. They're not good or God. I enjoy them. But it doesn't make them Christian because a Christian likes them. It's very important for us to realize that our preferences, because we're comfortable with them, doesn't make them right or good. And if someone has a different preference, it doesn't make them right or good or wrong because they're different. And so as we began to discuss things, he started talking about things in the world and problems and things like that. And I said, you know, if they reported objective news and absolute truth, what does that change related to our real purpose in life? This guy's a Christian. He said, at least people would know. So people don't want to know. They don't want to know the truth. That's why it's acceptable to have the news media that we have, to have the articles and the books and the, the magazines and all those different things that are sensational, that feel good, that are emotional and so on. So that's why we, as Christians, are to be the ones who share the truth. The truth with some sort of purpose to it all. And as I kind of started to share with him a little bit of what was going to be in the message this weekend, and I go all the way back to verse 7. Because sometimes we get so caught up in just need to be right. I just need to be right that we completely miss the point. In fact, us trying to be right makes us the biggest loser. How many of you have ever watched that show before? Anybody? When it first came out, I thought it was the dumbest name ever. I never even knew what was going on with it. I didn't know it was a weight loss show. I'm I'm looking at it. I'm going, the biggest loser. I'm thinking, great. They're going to start making fun of us nerds again. And they're going to go into the schools and find kids that are getting beat up and then put them on TV. That's immediately what I thought. I'm not kidding. I was wrong. But I want us to look at something this morning to to learn from a little bit of irony here. I want us to see things in our life that show us how to be the biggest loser. And in this case, I'm not talking weight loss. I'm talking about being a loser. How to be the biggest loser. Well, we see in Scripture here, in this section, first off, Paul's dealing with a problem here that the church sees themselves as number one. That the church itself is its own goal. Now, some of you have come from that background where church is number one. The concept of outreach and evangelism was the pastor's job. But that's not what Scripture says. In fact, Scripture says the pastor's job is to equip those that are in the seats and the pews or in the body to do the work of ministry. Not that I'm exempt from it because pastors are told to do the work of an evangelist, and I'm a Christian just like anybody else. But when the church sees themselves as serving themselves and feeding themselves and caring for themselves as number one, we lose because that's not our purpose and goal. That's not the reason that God put us here in this earth and put us together. Paul talks about that. He says, therefore, it's already an utter failure that you're going to law against each other. You're making yourself number one. You're putting yourself in the number one position. And the church itself, from verse 6, the church itself has said, I want to be most important. And the entire world watches and says, Jesus is a joke. 
This is what Paul is saying. I know this doesn't relate to today. It doesn't really, really sound like what we have today. That was levity. You can laugh. Here's the next thing I want us to consider. It's a phrase I was told by a mentor of mine for about 15 years. We can be so right that we become wrong. We can be so right. Now, so I've got all the arguments together. I've got everything together. This person is wrong. And what do we do? We win the argument and lose a friend, a marriage, an evangelistic opportunity, something. We spend time so focused. I'm going to be right. No, Joe, you don't understand. I have documented evidence that they took this from me, and they aren't going to listen to me, so I'm just going to go take care of it myself. Aren't, isn't he the guy that you served ushering with for years? Yeah, he owes me 500 bucks, though. It's been three years, and he hasn't paid me. What do you want? A friend or money? I just want to be right, Joe. You want to be alone. And pick whatever the scenario is. This happens in marriage, it happens in friendships, it happens in, in other kinds of relationships all over work. I remember probably about 15, 20 years ago having a conversation with a group of non-believers and I spent 20 minutes trying to explain to them how I was right in a certain scenario. And I still believe today that I was right, but guess who I didn't talk to anymore for the next three years that I worked there? Them. Because Joe doesn't even want to listen to what we have to say. And that's why I encourage a lot of you all, when you are evangelizing, you're talking with friends of yours. Oftentimes, it can be much more important to hear them talk about things 100% wrong so that when they finally stop and go, what do you think about that? They actually want to hear it. I know for me, I spent far too much time explaining and explaining and explaining. And as soon as they say something wrong, I go, hold on a second there. You can't say that you don't believe in Jesus. There's factual evidence. There's a, da, 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 all this different stuff. Let them say what they believe. Let them present their case. Let them be the defendant. And then we'll share the truth at that point. And a lot of times, even here, Paul continues on into, into verse 7 at the very end. He says, listen, you've lost because... You've made yourself number one. You have decided to be right instead of holy. You've decided to be right instead of righteous. And you're missing the point, he says. See, there are things in our life, and you can use this. This was an example given to me. There are things that we should place into our hands and close our hands around it and never let go of that truth. And then there are things we can put in our hands and leave it open. And if someone doesn't like what's in that hand, we throw it out. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to go to the end of my life going, man, I sure wish I would have converted everybody to this social stance or this political belief or this preference. Not everybody is going to like good coffee. Oh, well. I have an altar call at the end. But there are things that we close our hand around and we don't move on. But then there are things that we need to realize they're in an open hand. We have to let go. We have to realize that, yes, it may be right, but what is the cost I would pay to prove it? Unfortunately, the Corinthians had decided the cost was pushing the unchurched, and I hate that phrase, out from them so they could be right. 
that Christians were punching each other in the face in front of the world. That's not an easy thing to read through here. And Paul's not being gentle. He's wanting this church specifically to wake up. And and it got me to kind of a closing point for this verse here. And it has to do with we play church. We play church when we seek being right and rewarded in this life. It's very easy to get consumed. And, And I know this feeling. Trust me, there are other people in here, I know you have that same feeling. That you want to make sure that this person gets the credit that they deserve. You want to make sure that this person doesn't get stepped on. You want to make sure that people know you were the one who said it or did it, or you were the one who was right in whatever scenario. And you will spend your entire existence trying to make sure, no, I want them to know that I was right. But the problem is, is that God didn't promise rewards and rightness or recognition at all in this life, in this world. He said this, for the hope that was before him, he endured the cross. We're then encouraged in Peter that says we have a living hope. Where is that living hope? Not in this dimension. It's in heaven. Our hope doesn't lie here. So if my reward, the the, the rightness that I want, the proof, the vindication is here on this earth, I will die a very lonely, sad, angry man. Because I'm never going to be always right. And if I am right, I'm right at a high cost. That's a horrible place to be. We need to realize that if we're seeking to constantly be right or seeking to make sure that we get recognition for being right in this life, we're going to be disappointed. Because here's the beautiful part. He ends this section in chapter 11 saying, wait a second. Jesus said you're right before him if you're in him. Jesus said you're set apart before him and you have a reward in him. Why is that not good enough, Paul says? Why is that not good enough? I stopped there in my notes this morning. And God began to work on me and work on me and work on me. And if you've ever been in any kind of ministry, you realize that there's far more times that we have to let go of things. Even as Christians, we have to let go of things that we know we're dead right on. But no one's going to move. And we have to say, you know what, God, you got this. And I realized two points that weren't in here previously. I realized that there's a viewpoint that has to change for us. When we think of being a Christian, when we think of number one is a position in our life that God wants us to seek, and we were designed to seek that. So what is there? What is right there in that position? See, one viewpoint for us as humans is, view one, you exist to bless me. I don't think that, Pastor. I I think I'm a giving person. Okay. What happens when the waitress, waiter, doesn't do everything right? Well, they get less tip. Why? Well, I mean, that's their job. They exist to bless me. You want to blow a group of non-Christians' minds? There's a group of people who I've talked with before, and they're either atheists or agnostic and, and don't have much of a of a, of a religious respect, and they were talking about their tipping processes. And I'm listening to it, and I listen to it. One guy says, you know, for me, I hardly ever tip. Like, you literally have to have wings and a halo to get a tip from me. Otherwise, you got a salary, deal with it yourself. 
someone else is like, oh, no, 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 I always give the same amount no matter what. I just ignore it. You know, they need it or whatever. And someone else says, yeah, usually I'm kind of a rating system. If it's really great, uh, they might even get 30%. If it's terrible, they might get, you know, a quarter, whatever it is. And, of course, like, hey, there's a Christian over there. Let's ask him, hey, what do you do? And I said, you know what's weird? Is I used to be the same as the rating system over here with this guy. Really? I said, yeah. I said, but I changed. Recently, this is probably in the past two years, God convicted me. Really? I said, yeah, I, I am convicted now to, to give on a standard of grace and on a standard of rating. And they said, what do you mean? I said, if they give bad service, I'll tip more. What does that mean? I said, if the person's already having a terrible day and they don't want to talk to me, why would I want to make their day worse and minimize ever being able to talk to them? It, it was amazing one time I was <laughs> doing a, uh, a quick run for some food. It was a takeout. And you know how they've got, how many of you struggle with the fact that there's a tip line when you do takeout? Anybody? Yeah. Like, do I put a tip on there? Or are they going to like open the box and go, here, take your food. You didn't tip me. You just wonder what's going to happen. Well, this, this, this person, I think someone had spit in their food that morning. They had the worst attitude. And I remember just throwing on there something crazy, something popped in my head on the tip line, and I turned it around and just slid it up to him, and she grabbed it. You have no idea what this means to me. And then just shared something that had happened in her life. We had the same thing happen. There was a guy, pizza guy, was late, had all these different things going on, uh, didn't, didn't really have uh, the best service in the sense of finding where we were or whatever, shows up. We had bought two pizzas, gave him a $50 tip. This is uh, with the church. We had a leaders meeting. And he stopped and he goes, oh, my gosh, this is like a miracle or something. And I said, I said what do you mean? He goes, I got to go get a procedure done. I might have cancer. And I don't have a job right now. I'm literally picking up shifts at the pizza place. He showed up six months later saying, hey, I got the scans done. It's cancerous. He just happened to be delivering pizza again to us at our leaders meeting. We prayed for him right there. We prayed for him the first time. He shows up six, nine months later, says, hey, guess what? Had the surgery. No cancer. He's not stepped foot in the door, not gone to a church service, but God brought him at three specific points in time. Now imagine what the conversation would have been if it would have put a zero, a slash, stabbed the pen through it, handed it back. What would we have missed? We would have been right because he was a jerk. We would have been right. But what would, what would it cost? What would have been the cost? We can't miss that. We can't miss that as Christians. Because view two has this, I exist to bless God and bless others. That's a whole different mindset. I got pictures sent to me of some people, you guys came and helped and did all these chairs and, and ripped all the plastic off and got them all arranged and everything. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, yeah, this is view two. This is, this is these people at Rise. They have view two, that their life, their day, everything that was going on that day was, hey, I'm going to bless somebody else. It's what I can do. So they did it. I think of that when I watch the people serving the kids and, and, and the ushers and, and you guys. You know, we haven't had any people, cars, or you know, small animals run over in the parking lot. When I see you guys out there, you stop. That's a blessing to me, to see that viewpoint here in you at Rise. But this has to be a daily thing with us. How do we look at ourselves in our home? 
What is the purpose of our existence? And I think Paul wanted them to return to this. What do they want out of their life, out of being right? And I thought it was interesting. When you go through and you read verse 9 and 10, I read this section probably 50 times over the past two weeks. And it was so strange to me. Why? Because as you're going through this, Paul's just hammering on the church and hammering on the church. Remember the context here are Christians in the Corinthian church. He's hammering on the church, and then all of a sudden he, he throws this list of just distasteful things. The things that Paul lists off here are not as gentle as the New King James or King James or, or other translations would put it. They're very graphic, especially the homosexual section. It's very graphic. And oftentimes we'll look at it and go, because that is disgusting, I need to go ahead and hit people in the face with that. But the problem is, is when we share the problem without the solution, we become the problem. We become the problem. We become the second problem. Why I'm not becoming a Christian? Because of my sin and you. And I know several people in this church that have that testimony. I didn't become a Christian because I knew too many of them, and I didn't want to be one. And so when we read this in verse 9, we have to stop and say, okay, wait a second. He's writing this to Christians that are in Corinth. They've got a problem with bringing back the works of the flesh, the things in their life. They've got a problem with acting like they can accept the sin of the world. They've got a problem with looking like sinners that are unrepentant in front of the world. So what is the issue here? He lists off the people that they're supposed to be reaching in verse 9 and 10. And he doesn't say that you will not inherit the kingdom. He's not talking to sinners. He's talking to Christians. He's reminding the Christians, don't forget who isn't in the kingdom yet. Don't forget. Your job is not to seek your own and your benefit. Your job is to go talk to those people. He brings up a situation here that the Greeks, they call them catamites. They were boys that grew up and were homosexual slaves for other men that were rulers there. Now, how in the world is that a message to that kid who was brought up in that and forced into that lifestyle? Either the message here is Paul saying, go and repeat this to the world, or he's saying you have people trapped and you're to be saving them. What have we done with these verses? What have we done with what God has shown us? Paul didn't say they will not inherit the kingdom, those dirty, nasty, disgusting people. No, he said, verse 11, and such were some of you. This is where you came from. Did you forget? Your job wasn't to get saved and go into your little safe, healthy, fun little church and have your potlucks and then close the door so the sinners don't get you. No. No, we were saved to bring the salvation message to others. That was our call. I pretty much just said the next point. Like, there. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that we don't include saying that sin is sin. Sin is gross. Sin is nasty. Everything in this list is sin. Everything in this list is disgusting to God. But it's not disgusting because this sin sends us to hell. It's disgusting because this sin is evidence of the fact they don't serve Jesus. 
It reminds me of a conversation I've had with multiple people, even Christians. And I said, which sin sends you to hell? And I remember one Christian going, ha, the list is so long. Just read the Bible, Joe. And I said, no. No, because if sins sent us to hell, then every one of us are hosed. Because we didn't just automatically stop sinning when we became a Christian. There's one sin that, if undealt with, is unforgivable, and that's rejecting Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that there's justification. Paul deals with that in Romans. Should we continue in sin so we can have more grace? No. Your life isn't changed if you're okay with wrong worship. But if your life is changed, then you want to rightfully worship your God. It's so important for us to realize that when we have these these discussions about lists of sins and problems, there's, there's kind of two things that I think Paul is reminding us here for us to remember. Number one, we have a mission to reach the lost, not tell them they are lost. Can you imagine? How many of you have ever done any search and rescue work? Anybody? So, so think of this. You drop down a helicopter and you go up to the guy. He's almost frozen, almost dead on his snow machine. And you go, dude, you're lost. You're an idiot. All right, let me, let's go, guys. What if that's what happened? Man, how long has the church been doing that in America? That would be the dumbest thing in the world for search and rescue to come out and just have a megaphone and go, listen, you guys, you look hungry down there. Bet you wish you had some food like me. Click, all right, let's go. Next group of people that are lost. Let's just tell them that they're lost. No. I'm not saying we don't include saying that they're lost and saying that the sin is disgusting and that there's guilt to be taken care of. But here is the solution is what we do. Yeah, we have to admit that they're lost. Yeah, we have to admit that it's horrific what they're stuck in and then do it in the context of a solution. Do it in the context that we want to provide some sort of path to talk about Jesus. So the next thing from this verse here I want us to remember is we must be driven by the mission and broken for the mission field. It has to be the combination. I've known many evangelistic people that were driven by the mission and the call, but the people were objects. The people were a tally mark. I've known people that were broken for the mission field and would cry and say, God, just give me opportunities. And their own neighbors and friends would watch them leave every few months for a mission trip and never heard about Jesus. They weren't driven by the complete mission. It's important that our effect as missionaries starts every single day of our life. All of our focus goes into what God would have us do. I have had too many people who feel like they're called to ministry and have said this, even just recently, to their spouse. You're in the way of what God wants me to do. Yeah. (laughs) If I'm ever in jail, that's one of the reasons why, because I heard a husband say that. No, she's not in the way. She is the mission. She is the mission. So are the children. I believe personally, and I can see it, the evidence all throughout Scripture, 
that God has three or four main purposes, and they start in order. What have you done with my son? You can't engage with me without coming through my son. Number two, what have you done with the daughter I gave you, your wife? Number three, what about your children? What's the testimony of your life and those children? Number four is ministry and other things. God's not going to go, hey, Pastor Joe, how was it? That's going to be the fourth thing he even cares about. This is the fourth thing I have to care about in my devotion time, my personal time. What have I done with Jesus? And it is in that order. Spouse and children don't swap. God and children, God and spouse, whatever those swaps are, we always have to answer to God. We have to then answer to the one flesh. If you guys, oh man, I wish I could go into the theology in the book of Job and in other areas about one flesh and how God views marriage so, so deeply and so intensely. We have purposes that God's given us. And it's important for us to remember as we think of the lost world, Is it really something that breaks us? I'm telling you right now, to be really honest, there are days that I just say, you know what? I'd rather just not go anywhere. And I don't want to care about other people. I I just want to care about me. I don't even want to put pants on. I just want to do nothing. I know that feeling. I'm not running around with a halo and a Bible and evangelism tracts and saving people over the place. I'm human. And I stand up here convicted by what God has shown me, that sometimes I don't care about the mission field like I should. Do the lost really, does it bother me that when I left the drive through somewhere or that the person I talked with in the parking lot, yeah, we, we had a great conversation. Is it okay with me that when they pull out, they get leveled by an 18-wheeler? What's, what's going on with their life? Do we really get bothered by that? Are we really broken for the mission field? Or is number one, me? Verse 11, when Paul says, and such were some of you, I'm reminded by this statement here, never forget where we came from when we look at those who are right where we were. Man, think of that. We, we look at the lost and say, golly, they're so lost. And then Paul should say, and so were you. Oh, no, wait. You were born with Jesus. That's what it was. No, none of us have that. Well, I was saved when I was five. I don't have a bunch of things. Well, sure, you have the testimony that I have then. The testimony is that even though you knew it was right, you still did stupid things. Those that weren't born into a home where they knew the truth didn't know any better. I have a testimony that I think God's grace looks bigger to me than to you because I went 35 years and continued to do stupid things that God says, I still love you. You're dumb, Joe, but I still love you. That's awesome. That's awesome. Why he has kept me this long, I don't. I'm praying this morning. I'm like, man, God, why do you even let me touch your Bible? Like, why am I allowed to read your words? I mean, this is ridiculous. You, you realize who you've asked here, okay? Oh, I have constant shoe flavor in my mouth. I want us to remember, though, there's a set of phrases. Let me read verse 11 again. A set of phrases I want us to look at this morning. It says this, and such were, if you haven't underlined it, or if you're one of those people that say don't write in the Bible, get over yourself and circle the word were. 
were some of you. The, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let me speak English for you in these points. Number one, he says we were cleansed. Jesus truly cleans the guilt from our lives. He does. If there's ever any guilt that we have in our life, anything we feel, any guilt at all, we haven't surrendered that to Jesus. I just don't know if he can take care of that one. Who's God? You or him? Because if he's really God, then there can't be guilt. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I have guilt, if I have that condemnation, I'm not in Jesus. I'm not talking about salvation at this point. I'm talking about the fact that what if I let go? If I let him forgive everything, or am I trying to forgive some of it still? We can't pay God back. We can't hold on to a few things and say, listen, when I get to heaven, I'll have this debt worked off and I'll I'll pay you back, God. We accepted him because we can't pay any of it. He takes the guilt. So Paul reminds us, you were washed by Jesus. You were cleansed by Jesus. He took the guilt away. He cleansed us and worked on us. The next thing he says is he says made holy, the word sanctification or set apart. You were holy. You were removed from where you were at and you were set apart. And it means two things for us today. We belong to him is the main point, the main purpose right here. We belong to him. So that means family, which is awesome. He makes the family though. He makes the family. We don't go and say, well, I'm going to force family things to happen. And so that's unfortunately what has created some church environments where it's internally focused. He sets us apart, it says. He's the one who differentiates us. And the next part of it here is responsibility. If I have been set apart, it's always for a purpose. I have a responsibility to God and what he's called me to do. And sometimes we've felt this. I don't know if you felt it. We go through our life at certain points. Some of us feel it at salvation. Some of us feel it every day. Some of us feel it later on in life, whatever it is. But we feel this obligation because of what God has done for us. We want to respond in some way. If you don't feel that this morning, pray about that. We do owe him everything, literally. And we should feel that obligation. But it can't turn to guilt because, well, I'm not doing enough because we couldn't do enough in the first place. It has to turn to God. I want to give this up to you. My time, my talents, my possessions, they're all yours. What do you want? Well, that's not easy. He's not going to show up and go, hey, go check your email. I sent one to you. But he will answer it and change our hearts. He'll help us understand and see things. Next, as we talk about the different things that are going on in this verse, you've got this justification, and, and there's different ways to kind of massage theology words and so on and try and make them less confusing to different people. But God puts us in front of him and says, because I say so, you're right in front of me. It was a work that he did. It was a work that he can only explain. And here, here's something for us to think of when he says that he's made us right, he's the one who's justified us and will vindicate us, is that the truth and our goal is to remember that we are right in front of God. 
And are we okay with that? Are we okay with just being right in front of God? Because we're not living in a world where being right as a Christian is acceptable. Now, we have to accept that fact, though. We have to accept the fact that even the country we live in is not the country that we know of. That Christianity is not accepted, nor is it understood, like it used to be. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, because no one throughout time has ever experienced what we have experienced in America. It's not real in the context of the Bible either. Everybody who, who got saved and became a Christian in here did so at danger of losing their life. Here, that's very different. And a friend of mine that's done a lot of work, in, missions work in Islamic countries, and he said, no, when you become a Christian there, you will, you will literally count the cost and say, I believe in Jesus well enough to die because when they find out tomorrow that I have been going to a church or I talked to a Christian, legally they can kill me. And they won't get in trouble, they will get honor. That's not where we live today. So we have to realize that we're right in front of God because he said so. He made us right. Maybe not right in front of the world where we're going to win every argument. We're going to win every discussion. We're going to get that $500 back that Jim Bob owes me because, you know, well, he's just being mean and won't pay me back. That's not what God promises. To the living hope that we have, like I talked about in the beginning, is the salvation in Jesus Christ, the salvation now from the guilt and the weight and, and purpose given now, but also salvation in the end when God finally brings his judgment against darkness and evil and against powers and principalities that will finally be destroyed. I will not be found in worship or in following those, but following him. If God said, Alaska is a place of sin, and I will be judging it, I will drop a bomb in the center of it, and a place will be a parking lot, quickly leave. If you're still here, just because you don't believe the bomb isn't going off doesn't change the fact that you're going to be vapor. God doesn't want the sin and evil. He's going to utterly, completely destroy it. He's given victory over it, and then soon to come, there will be destruction of it. That's an awesome thing. I don't think I want any more some of the evil we see in the world today. It's all over the place. Just read another article where a young lady became a Christian, and then they forced her to watch her family be murdered. This was in a Muslim country. And then they killed her. Well, this was moments after accepting Christ. That's not where we're at today. And in some ways, I'm, I'm glad, but in other ways, we get lazy. And I want to, don't get too excited now. I want to close with this point this morning. This goes for anyone in the room. Who is number one? Remember the very beginning, we started with this question, this point. Number one is always going to be what we seek after, always. We're always going to look out for number one. So that's why I close with this question. Who is number one in your life? Now, some of us would respond with, with something along the lines of, well, God, God's always number one, absolutely. 
And I believe that's our intent, and I won't doubt that intent. But what about in five seconds? What about in an hour? What about in two hours? What about tomorrow morning? Monday morning is like, you know, there's no such thing as sin Monday morning for three hours, right? Because everybody's just nasty. What about that? What about in, in, in a week and a half when things didn't happen how we wanted it to? Who's number one? Well, God, I expected things to go this specific way, and I'm just not happy. Well, I'm not God, but I can repeat what I, what I think about that situation. Get over it. You're not number one. If God saw fit to change how your life went for that week or that month or that, that year, whatever it was, then you got to trust him. Because last I checked, he's a little bit bigger than us. And he's got a purpose for it. I don't understand it all. Uh, trust me, I wake up some mornings and I'm like, man, God, I'm just going to say I trust you, but I want to actually walk it out, so help me every step because I'm not believing you right now. Okay, I believe you right now, but now I don't believe you. <laughs> and it just, it's every step. It's like I'm not sure if the floor is going to hold me, God. But he does every time. Here's a statement I want to close with before we pray. God change it up a little bit. No, I'm not going to keep going for another hour, although I'd love to. God wants to work in each of our lives. And there are plenty of ways that when we look at things in our life, there are plenty of ways we'd like it to go. There are plenty of ways when we look at the situation and we say, okay, God, I've put these things together. So here, just go ahead and give it back to me because I've already done it for you. We do that, don't we? We've got everything figured out. We're like, okay, God, you know, I'm going to need this money for this. I'm going to need this things for this. I'm going to have this set up this way, and this person's going to say this and do this and all this. Okay, God, I've got my perfect life built. And, and we hand it to him, and he looks at it and shakes it. And what do we do? We flip out. God, what are you doing? How many of you had those Etch-a-Sketches, right? Right? And, and you had a beautiful, all I could ever do was a staircase. I'm like, check out the little zigzag. And then I went to the other side. I was making ziggurats my whole life. I was, a, I was an artist. Now, what did the jerky friend or older brother do? Oh, yeah, that's cool. And it's gone. Everything is gone. But here's the problem. When we think we're number one and we put ourselves in there, we hand God the etch-a-sketch of our life, and he goes, that's cute, but you gave it to me. I'm going to make something prettier. But how many times when we get that etch-a-sketch back from him, it is so much better than we thought. Look back on your life on something that you knew you wanted. You absolutely had to have it. And you look at it today and you go, praise God I did not have that. There's a female that I knew I was supposed to marry. I praise God that I have my wife, Kelly. There's all kinds of scenarios in our life where we knew, God, how dare you not give that to me? How dare you take that from me? I knew that was the best for me. I wanted that. How could you ever do that to me? Just working on a masterpiece for you. Who's number one? 
that doesn't make it hurt less. Some of us have had God change things in our life or in our path. (sighs) I can't even imagine the pain. But I love my God more than any feelings, and I know that he's going to work it out. He will vindicate it. So this morning, let's bow our heads. And I want to pray together. I, I, don't, I don't care if this is your first time or if this is the 400th time of answering this question. If you right now want to pray to make Jesus number one, either again or for the first time, raise your hand this morning. I want to pray with you. Amen, amen, amen. Keep your hands up. Amen. 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 So here's where we're going to pray. You can put your hands down. There's no music, although it would be kind of cool, but there's no music. This is not an emotional response. This is really a serious problem. This is a serious issue. Is Jesus going to be number one? And I want you to pray with me. You can pray it quietly, but pray it to God. Say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for me being number one. I'm sorry for other things being number one. I want you to be number one. I don't understand everything, but you do. I don't know everything, but you do. Please help me to trust you, God. Please help me to keep you number one. Please forgive me for not making you number one sooner. Thank you for forgiving me and removing the guilt and the frustration and help me as I walk out this life. Help me to keep you number one. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning and the the opportunity to understand you more, to know that you are number one, to know that no matter what, you've forgiven. In the areas where we didn't make you number one, God, in the areas where we chose to say, you know what? I think I'm going to do it my way. Or I think God got it wrong when this happened to me. Or I think God got it wrong. Or whatever scenario it is. Thank you, God, for forgiving us of that. I don't know how many times we've said such rotten things about you, God, but you continue to forgive us, and I thank you for that. Please work on us this week, God. Please continue to bless the mothers on this amazing day as we celebrate Mother's Day. And I pray that you would work in our hearts as only you can, God. And bring us this coming week, God, with a testimony of your amazing work. In Jesus' name, everyone together? Amen. Amen.